You're entering Outer Brightness. Hey, Fireflies. Welcome back to Outer Brightness. Uh, as you can see, we got the band back together. Michael Flournoy's here, uh, aka Dr. Pepper. And for the first time ever, we've got Doc Eklund here. Welcome, Matthew Doc Eklund. Hey, I'm glad to be here. I know I'm not as, uh, I'm not as uh, fun to have around as Dr. Pepper, but at least we got him here too. And Michael, welcome back. Thanks. Good to see you guys again. It's been too long. Yeah, for sure. Glad to have you on board with us for this episode. So this uh, this episode, Fireflies, we're going to be talking about one of the gospel topics essays. Uh, I reached out to Michael uh, to have him pick one of them and uh, decided we'd record a bonus episode for season six. So um, we're going to be reading through the Mother in Heaven episode or sorry, mother in he- mother in heaven article, uh, gospel topics essay. And then we've got some questions that we're going to discuss, uh, between the three of us. So, um, before we get started, uh, I'm just going to give a quick kind of intro to this topic. So, um, when I was a teenager, I distinctly remember, uh, occupying my typical sacrament meeting position, uh, sitting next to my mother hunched over in the pew, staring at my shoes, and trying to convey to her with by my posture just how miserable I was at being dragged out of bed on a Sunday morning. However, that Sunday was different because a member of the bishopric was making an announcement that members were not to pray to Heavenly Mother. He quoted from Gordon B. Hinckley, uh, who was then the um, first counselor in the first presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he had spoken in the October 1991 General Conference Uh, and warned against church members who were advocating that women should pray to a mother in heaven. My young mind was burning because this warning, uh, combined with the 23rd August 1991 statement from the First Presidency condemning symposia like Sunstone, made me aware for the first time that there was a vocal group of dissenters within the LDS church that worried the leadership. And I was already aware of the polygamous groups in Utah who were outside the LDS church, Uh, But this warning about praying to a mother in heaven notified me that there were some codified doctrines that the leadership of the church considered dangerous. So that's our topic today, Heavenly Mother. And what we're going to do is uh, have Matthew read through uh, the whole of the article. It's it's fairly short. It's it's just over one page. Uh, So he's going to read through that, and then we'll jump into the discussion questions. All right. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. So this is the gospel topic essay, Mother in Heaven, that you can find directly on the LDS Church's website. So, Mother in Heaven, the doctrine of the Heavenly Mother is a cherished and distinctive belief among Latter-day Saints. As Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles has said, quote, our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them, close quote. While there is no record of a formal revelation to Joseph Smith on this doctrine, some early Latter-day Saint women recall that he personally taught them about a Heavenly Mother, or a Mother in Heaven, pardon me. The earliest published references to the doctrine appeared shortly after Joseph Smith's death in 1844 in documents written by his close associates. 
The most notable expression of the idea is found in a poem by Eliza R. Snow entitled, My Father in Heaven, and now known as a hymn, O My Father. This text declares, quote, In the heavens, are parents single? No, the thought makes reason stare. Truth is reason, truth eternal, tells me I have a mother there, close quote. Subsequent church leaders have affirmed the existence of a mother in heaven. In 1909, the first presidency taught that, quote, all men and women are in the similitude of the universal father and mother and are literally the sons and daughters of deity, end quote. Susa Young Gates, a prominent leader in the church, wrote in 1920 that Joseph Smith's visions and teachings revealed the truth that, quote, the divine mother is side by side with the divine father, end quote. And in the family, a proclamation to the world issued in 1985, the first presidency and quorum of the 12 apostles declared, quote, each person is a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents. And as such, each has a divine nature and destiny, end quote. Prophets have taught that our heavenly parents work together for the salvation of the human family. Quote, we are part of a divine plan designed by heavenly parents who love us, end quote, taught Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. President Harold B. Lee stated, quote, we forget that we have a heavenly father and a heavenly mother who are even more concerned, probably, than our earthly father and mother, and that influences from beyond are constantly working to try to help us when we do all we can, end quote. Latter-day Saints direct their worship to Heavenly Father in the name of Christ and do not pray to Heavenly Mother. In this, they follow the pattern set by Jesus Christ, who taught his disciples to, quote, always pray unto the Father in my name, end quote. Latter-day Saints are taught to pray to Heavenly Father, but as President Gordon B. Hinckley said, quote, the fact that we do not pray to our Mother in Heaven is in no way, in no way belittles or denigrates her, end quote. Indeed, as Elder Rudger or Rudger Clausen wrote, quote, we honor woman when we acknowledge godhood in her eternal prototype, end quote. As with many other truths of the gospel, our present knowledge about a mother in heaven is limited. Nevertheless, we have been given sufficient knowledge to appreciate the sacredness of this doctrine and to comprehend the divine pattern established for us as children of heavenly parents. Latter-day Saints believe that this pattern is reflected in Paul's statement that, quote, neither is the man without the woman, neither woman without the man in the Lord, end quote. Men and women cannot be exalted without each other. Just as we have a father in heaven, we have a mother in heaven. As Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles has said, quote, Our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. End quote. All right. Thanks, Matthew. Um, so kind of the first question I want to get into is what was your first experience with this distinctive LDS doctrine of a mother in heaven? Uh, and did you feel any affinity for this doctrine? Uh, Matthew or Michael, we'll go to you first. Okay. So I vaguely remember being a very young man when my dad told me originally that we could become gods. You know, he kind of brought this concept up to me first saying, you know, anything that has a child or has offspring, that offspring is going to grow up to be exactly like, whatever produced it. <clears throat> and since we're children of literal children of God, we were going to become God someday as well. But I think it was even a couple of years beyond that when he told me that God was married as well. So that was kind of like sh big shock part two in my life. Um, but of course, growing up in the church, it kind of made logical sense. Cause I'm like, Hey, you know, you've got to be uh, married and sealed in order to be exalted. And, if we're following the same pattern 
that our Heavenly Father followed, then it makes sense uh, in that regard. Um, <clears throat> I remember being in a, a priest group in church where the bishop kind of brought this up a little bit too. And some of my colleagues were saying, why don't we ever talk? Or some of my classmates were saying, why don't we ever talk about her? And his response was, well, she's very sacred. And if the world had public knowledge of her, they would uh, they would malign her and say all kinds of terrible things. And obviously that would hurt God uh, very badly to have his wife talked about like that. And, and so I don't know that I would say I had a huge affinity for it, um, maybe because I never really had much of a relationship with my mother growing up. And so having a heavenly mother just didn't have like this huge appeal to me. I didn't know what that was supposed to look like or, or anything. So uh, then I went on my mission and of course, Mormon missionaries love to speculate about all kinds of deep doctrines. And so that's when it came up that uh, in a lot of their opinions, after this life, we would have the opportunity not to only be sealed to one wife, but possibly multiple wives. And I didn't like that at all. I was like, you know what, even if I could have more than one wife, I would only have one. And their response was, why would you want to diminish your progression like that? And so I really, I remember coming off my mission and <clears throat> I was a, a big fan of the whole idea. Like if it's not in the canon, it's not scripture. Um, and that's kind of how I put my worldview together. And so I couldn't find any evidence of a heavenly mother in scripture. And so I, I came to really believe that that wasn't a, a true doctrine. So I was actually a Mormon who didn't believe in heavenly mother um, post-mission. So yeah, I wouldn't say I really had an affinity to the doctrine at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate what you said there about, um, you know, if you couldn't find it in the, in the canon, then you, you didn't grasp it as a, as a strong doctrine or as something that you felt like you were uh, bound to believe. Um, I, Matthew, no knock on you. I'm, I'm just not sure what, uh, what version of the essay you were reading from uh, the first paragraph uh, from in the version that you were reading has a significant section cut off because it starts out and says, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches that all human beings, male and female, are beloved spirit children of heavenly parents, a heavenly father, and a heavenly mother. This understanding is rooted in scriptural and prophetic teachings about the nature of God and our relationship to deity and the godly potential of men and women. And then it goes into the the first sentence that you had read. Um, but I think it's also significant that the, the first part of the second paragraph where it says, while there is no record of a formal revelation to Joseph Smith on this doctrine, uh, some early Latter-day Saint women recalled that he personally taught them about a mother in heaven. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's important to get that out there in light of what Michael said, you know, that um, the essay kind of acknowledges that it's, it's, it's dubiously attested, even in LDS canon, uh, as a doctrine. Uh, but Matthew, what, what are your thoughts on the first question? Um, what was your first experience with this doctrine, and did you feel an affinity for it? You know, it's one of those things where... When you grow up LDS, you kind of just, you know, you just kind of absorb through osmosis certain doctrines, and you're not really entirely sure when you first heard it or when you first learned about it. I do remember having discussions with my dad when I was quite young about the idea of becoming gods. I remember asking him about that, becoming gods of your own planet. And it's kind of related to Mother in Heaven. But as far as specifically that, um, I, I honestly don't really even remember. And it's kind of just something that you just take for granted. At least I did kind of. 
especially when it, it mentions later on in the essay about the family of proclamation to the world is specifically talks about, um, you know, heavenly parents and the whole idea of eternal progression, this idea that we're kind of following the same path that God has, which a lot of LDS today will challenge and say that that's not uh, canonical or it's not official or whatever, you know, they might try to squeeze in an eternal God that, that never progressed or doesn't have a God above him. But if you just take the eternal, the classic traditional LDS view of eternal progression, it just makes sense. You know, it just kind of fits into the puzzle. So it wasn't really something that I really questioned. It wasn't something that I really latched on to. It wasn't something that I really, yeah, felt, you know, particularly strong feelings about. I just kind of said, oh, okay, well, we have parents on earth. We have parents in heaven. It makes sense. And then just kind of went from there. Yeah, I'm with you there, Matthew. Um, it, it just was kind of uh, ubiquitous uh, in Mormon culture to to kind of adopt this this understanding of um, we have earthly parents, we have heavenly parents, and you know I remember kind of my first um, understanding of this probably came with like listening to the 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 soundtracks or or watching um, Saturday's Warrior or uh, My Turn on Earth, some of those 1970s. Um, LDS musicals that kind of touch on this idea that uh, we were created spirit children first in a, in a pre-earth life and then sent here um, and, and kind of part and parcel with that is that this idea that you have a heavenly mother. Um, as far as whether or not I personally felt any affinity uh, for the doctrine, I, I didn't. Um, I know that my paternal grandmother did, and I'm, I'm going to give a, a trigger warning here for any listeners who uh, may want to bow out if um uh, topics like like suicide uh, make you uncomfortable. Feel free to to bow out at this point. Um, but my um, on my birthday, fifty years before I was born, my paternal great grandmother took her own life. And my paternal grandmother, who was seventeen at the time, uh, found her and um, then uh, ended up uh, kind of being a, a surrogate mother to her two younger sisters as they grew up. Um, so my grandmother was 17 and my, uh, my, her youngest sister, who she was closest with, um, my great aunt Viola was seven at the time that my great, great grandmother took her life. So um, that was a very difficult and traumatic experience for my grandmother. And I remember her talking about that. And the essay mentions Eliza Snow's poem that has become the, the LDS hymn, Oh My Father. Um, that was one of my grandmother's favorite hymns because of the line about um there being a mother there as well. So um, just want, just kind of want to bring that up because uh, it's not a doctrine that I felt an affinity for, but I, I do have within my own family um, some women who who very much uh, related to this doctrine. So Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Paul. I appreciate that. You are listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around.
Um, so let's the the essay mentions uh, several uh, scriptural passages that it uh, indicates you know Latter Day Saints believe uh, give evidence of this doctrine. Um, so let's let's take a look at those in turn. Uh, the first one is Genesis one. Uh, 26 and 27. And I will read that. It says, and God said, let the, I'll start over. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God created he him male and female created he them. So what was your understanding of this passage as a, as a Latter-day Saint. Did you see it giving uh, evidence to a doctrine of the mother in heaven, Michael? I mean, <clears throat> I guess by the time that I was uh, really serious about scripture, like after my mission, no. Um, what I did see was that it was uh, making a case for us having an appearance like God, having physical bodies of flesh and bone, you know, two arms, two legs. I would definitely made that argument, but I didn't see it uh, promoting a heavenly mother, but I do have family that will point to this and will say that clearly there were female uh, gods as well. What about you, Matthew? Yeah, I don't know. It, I'm trying to remember. It, it seems like I would point to this as just seeing like, yeah, that we, they were made to look like, to make, to make us look like God. And I guess it depends on to what extent that's true. And I guess most LDS do take this very literally in terms of like, this is, you know, that's why we look like God. But since women don't look like heavenly father, because heavenly father is a man, you know, I probably did use that as justification to show that, you know, there must be a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. And so I guess to let us make man in our image, you know, uh, most Christians will say that that's seeing, um, that's the intra-Trinitarian speech where it's the father and the son and the spirit speaking together. But I guess LDS would see uh, that as either God talking to, Jehovah, you know, like Elohim talking to Jehovah, which is the father and Jesus or, but if, if that's the case, and then that would mean the heavenly mother, you know, if it's making man in our image, meaning man and woman in both the image of heavenly father and heavenly mother, that would mean that heavenly mother was also participating in creation. And um, it seems like depends on, I do remember vague notions of like uh, LDS leaders that would say that priesthood leaders in the pre-existence were participating in creation. So that must mean the Heavenly Mother holds some kind of priesthood in order to do that. So it gets kind of complicated if you try to go down that route of using this passage in particular to prove that we're being made in the image of God requires both a mother and a father. And if, if I could add to that just a little bit real quick, too. I mean, when I look at this, too, um, and I've, I've had arguments with uh, some of my family members over this. But uh, just to give an example real quick, you know, we've got this, we've got these two cats and uh, one of them is this black cat named Dracula and they had a, a litter of kittens and one of them was this black female kitten. And I mean, I'm just like, it looked just like Dracula and acted just like Dracula. But, you know, even though she was female, she was in the image of, of her father, you know? So, I mean, there's just not enough specific uh, there's not it's not specific enough to indicate that there has to be a female god for that passage to be true even if you assume the lds understanding to be correct that it is talking about physical appearance um which i would argue that it's not because it seems to actually be uh uh calling it like pointing that out to be like dominion you know like that's 
talked about immediately after, like, let's make God our image and give them dominion over everything else on the earth. So uh, that's just some of my thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a, a good point. And it's, you know, as I was reading through the essay again, uh, a few weeks ago in preparation for this episode, uh, I noted that language that I think is, I think it's really restrained what they say, you know, when they say this understanding is rooted in scriptural and prophetic teachings about the nature of God. Um, they don't say, they don't go so far as to say, you know, that this, this understanding is taught clearly in scripture or this understanding, you know, anything like that, that's so uh, dogmatic. They, they, they really restrain what they say. It's rooted in scriptural teachings. It's not necessarily evidenced by it. Um, and so to your point, Michael, where you're saying, you know, there's not enough specificity here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Uh, I would agree with that. The next uh, Mormon scriptural passage that they cite is Moses chapter three, uh, verses four to seven. Uh, would one of you like to read that? Or I can, I've got it up if you'd like me to read it. Uh, yeah, sorry, I don't have that um, right now. Okay, so go ahead. I'll read it. And now behold, I say unto you that these are the generations of the heaven and of the earth when they were created in the day that I, the Lord God, made the heaven and the earth and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For I, the Lord God, created all things of which I have spoken spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. For I, the Lord God, had not caused it to rain upon the face of the earth. And I, the Lord God, had created all the children of men and not yet a man to till the ground. For in heaven created I them and there was not yet flesh upon the earth, neither in the water, neither in the air. But I, the Lord God, spake, and there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And I, the Lord God, formed man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul, the first flesh upon the earth, the first man also. Nevertheless, all things were before created, but spiritually were they created and made according to my word. So um, this passage, it doesn't really mention... Eve at all, right? It doesn't mention females. Um, what it does mention is the the LDS idea uh, of a spiritual creation before before a physical creation, um, which you know then leads to the the doctrine of, of a preexistence. Um, so, would you have used this passage, Matthew or Michael? Jump in as you see fit to to support a doctrine of a mother in heaven. Um, personally, I would never have gone to this passage to argue that a heavenly mother existed, but I might've gone there to prove that there was a pre-existence. You know, I think that uh, just to kind of give an explanation that there was uh, pre-existing material and that we were all created spiritually before being created physically, I might go that route, but I just don't see the argument for a heavenly mother here at all. I'm surprised this even made it into the article. Um, now, one thing that is kind of interesting, I'm looking at, at Romans chapter 4, uh, in verse 17, uh, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Uh, basically saying that, uh, that God, by his word, has created out of nothing everything uh, that exists, so you know, it really flies in the face of what Moses is saying here, that everything was created, you know, spiritually first, um, or that there was a pre-existing material, because there simply was not anything like that. Tangent, I know. Yep, no, that's good. Matthew, any thoughts on the, the book of Moses, chapter 3, 4 to 7 passage? 
Yeah, nothing really to add. I kind of agree with Michael that I would use it for the pre-existence or the pre-mortal existence, whatever you want to call it. Not so much, uh, yeah, talking about Heavenly Mother. How about you, Paul? Yeah, I agree. I was, you know, I, <laughs> when when Michael just now said he was shocked that it made it into the article, I was like, well, I better go back and make sure that I didn't miscite what they were citing. Um, but no, the the first footnote uh, is where they list all the, the scriptural passages where they say that this is rooted and uh, Moses three, four to seven is there. So I'm not sure exactly what they, what they are going for there, except maybe just they're trying to support the idea that there was a, a preexistence and, and um, kind of that first sentence of the, of the essay, which says that um, male and female, all, all human beings, male and female are beloved spirit children of heavenly parents. So maybe they're just trying to support that generally by saying, see Moses, the book of Moses says that there was a, a preexistence, but um, okay, so good on you, Michael, for going to Romans, because that's actually the next citation they have. Romans chapter 8, uh, 16 to 17. All right, I got it. You want okay. me to read it? Yep. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. How does, how does this passage support a doctrine of a mother in heaven? I mean, it, it says that we're children of God. And if you take that literally, I guess you could imply that there must have been a, a heavenly mother. But it just gets a little bit awkward when the context of just one verse away like completely changes the meaning. Because in verse 16, I just have to point it out. I'm sorry, verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. If we're children by adoption, obviously that completely takes the, the wind out of the sails of there having to be a heavenly mother. Yeah. Matthew, any thoughts there? Yeah, it's another passage that tries to connect us as being literal children of heavenly parents, but doesn't explicit. it's not an explicit statement that we are to have a heavenly mother. So it's kind of like you have to fit it into the system and then use, well, if we have, if we have earthly parents that are father and mother, we must have father and mother in heaven as well. So it's kind of, yeah, that, that seems to kind of be like what how they tie it all together. And yeah, as Michael said, if you read it in context, it doesn't really tell you that we're literal children. And it's funny because it's it's talking about believers, you know, but LDS believe that we're everybody, believers or not, are literal children of heavenly father and heavenly mother. So like, what's the point of encouraging Christians to like, you know, take cheer and, you know, we're a spirit, you know, proclaims to our spirit that we are children of God and we cry out, Abba, Father. Like, what's the point of that? How does that encourage us or give us hope when an atheist who spits at the name of God and curses Jesus's name every day, if they could say the same thing, you know, it's, it doesn't really make sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, because, you know, Latter-day Saints will often um, cite this idea that we're, we're literal children of, of heavenly parents um, as, as a reason for hope. Right. But to your point, Matthew, um, you know, someone who is an enemy to God, if, you know, them being able to say that, how does, how does that give them hope? Right. If they're, if they're in an attitude of, of rebellion against God. So, right. And I, and I just want to point out too, that like it talks about, and if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So does that mean everybody is an heir of God? Everybody is going to inherit everything in creation, hmm. believer or not Latter-day Saint or not, you know, Judas, all of the people who are sons of perdition, who are also literal children of God. You know, some LDS will say that when you become a son of perdition, you're like, you know, 
disowned from the family, I guess. Um, but even even people in the Celestial Kingdom, they're not inheriting all that God has. They're not joint heirs with Christ. They're like they're given like a tiny little uh, a token gift, you know, <laughs> for uh, for whatever it is they inherit. So so it's like this passage talks about spiritual adoption, and then they pick this specific verse that they claim is talking about literal childhood of God. And then it goes back to being spiritual adopted children, because only the, those who are children of Christ, as LDS say, will inherit all things. So it goes from spiritual to physical to spiritual or, 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 you know, adopted, literal adopted, you know, it doesn't make sense in the context. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And the other thing that doesn't make sense is according to this logic. I mean, one of the things that I love about Christianity is that God doesn't send any of his children to hell. But with the Mormon perspective, he's already sent a third of his spirit children, like are already destined to go there just for not keeping their first estate. And so, I mean, I think that's a really problematic thing. I mean, it's like, hey, he's a really just a failed parent, if that's the case. Um, the other thing that's a little bit awkward is like, I'm just trying to put myself back in the LDS mindset a little bit. And looking at verse uh, 15, like I, I cited a minute ago, it talks about crying, Abba, Father, and then the Heavenly Mother is just left out completely. And it's just one of those things where it's like, this is a perfect opportunity, if it was true, for the scripture to just to put it there. I mean, unless like for some reason, I don't know if the LDS would claim that Paul wasn't aware of this doctrine because the restoration hadn't played out, or not the restoration, but like uh, Christianity, hadn't, Christianity hadn't been fully brought to bear at that point or what, but it's just, uh, it seems very strange that it's absent there if it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. And, that, and that's, you know, the other line from the essay that kind of stood out to me is, you know, while there is no record of a formal revelation to Joseph Smith on this doctrine, some early Latter-day Saint women recalled that he personally taught them about a mother in heaven. Um, you know, my, my understanding of LDS teaching is that prophets and apostles are important because they're supposed to be the ones to receive revelation on behalf of the church and, and deliver it to the church. And yet this essay is, is kind of clear that there's no revelation from Joseph Smith on this doctrine. And yet here we are talking about it as a doctrine of the LDS church. How, how does that happen? Right. So right. it's not, it's not even right. something that's canonized in there, you know, that's put before the church uh, for common consent. It's just kind of there as a cultural doctrine. Yeah. And, and what's crazy, because you're, what you're saying is that a couple of women with, uh, with accounts are coming up with this doctrine and they do not only not hold the priesthood, but they do not hold priesthood keys. And if that's the case, why do we need prophets and apostles at all? If anybody can come up with a doctrine because they said Joseph Smith told them in privacy. Yeah. And I, you know, I want to be, I want to be careful here and tread lightly. Michael, you and I discussed possibly having a, you know, a female ex Latter-day Saint Christian on the show for this episode with us to discuss this doctrine, because, um, you know, I've mentioned before that I came out of the LDS church uh, kind of through a detour uh, along the path of, of more, um, progressive Mormonism, where uh, there are uh, many women in the Latter-day Saint faith and on the progressive side of the Latter-day Saint faith for whom this doctrine is very important, right? They And, you know, they look at statements like uh, Gordon B. Hinckley made, and it, and it hurts them. And they look at the silence uh, of scripture 
uh, on a doctrine of mother in heaven. And it hurts them because they think, oh, something about women is distasteful and it's being uh, withheld and, and the patriarchy and all of that. Um, and so I want to tread lightly and, and understand that that's, that is the experience of, of, of some people. But I think what's interesting uh, about the, the line that I just quoted from the essay where it talks about there not being a formal revelation, but several women recalled him talking about it. Um, the footnote for that, if you go to footnote three in the essay, it cites Zina Diantha Huntington Young and says that she recalled that when her mother died in 1839, Joseph Smith consoled her by telling her that in heaven, she would see her own mother again and become acquainted with her eternal mother. Um, now, Zina Diantha Huntington Young was married to Joseph Smith as a plural wife uh, on October 27, 1841. So this doctrine is, is tied up with his proposals to women uh, for plural marriage, um, which, which might be an interesting link for why it doesn't completely disappear within Mormonism, even though it's not formally canonized um, as a revelation. Any thoughts on, on that from either of you? Hmm. Yeah. I'm not really sure. That's interesting though. Um, yeah. Um, she's got an interesting, fascinating history herself in terms of polygamy and all that. So do you, th- do you think that was like a genuine thing or was it more of a kind of like a reassurance, like, Hey, stay on the boat with this whole polygamy thing, you know, from Smith to her, you mean? Yeah. 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 I don't know. Um, I, it's, it's hard to get in. It's hard to get inside the mind of someone you've never met. Um, and I know like a lot of, a lot of people look at Joseph Smith and think, Oh, you know, he's just, uh, he's gaslighting women. He's, he's doing all kinds of this nefarious stuff. Um, and, and maybe I'm just, uh, also, you know, recalling, uh, pieces about him that were written in very, uh, glowing terms and, and, and aimed at getting you to feel sympathy with him. You know, I'm thinking about like passages that talk about when he was dragged out of, uh, the Johnson house in Kirtland, um, and, you know, tarred and feathered in the middle of the winter and, and the, the exposure that his, uh, two young, uh, children experienced at the time, uh, caught, ended up in their death, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to get at that, whether or not, uh, he's genuine, uh, in his comfort, uh, to other people. Um, but, um, it's also hard to, to not think, you know, with some of the things that he did that, and some of the lies that he told that there's some, there's some duplicity going on with him. So, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to say, but it just seems like something kind of like how he's, he was very well known for, you know, coming up with things on the spot, like Zelf, the white Nephite, you know, somebody found a pile of bones and it just mm-hmm. kind of out of the blue got this revelation about this supposed white Nephite, even though. Yeah. So that's just yeah. kind of an idea I had is maybe it was something I'm not even sure he consciously came up with these ideas. You know, maybe they just popped into his head and he kind of rolled with it. You know, I don't know. So I, I don't know. It's just interesting to think about. Yeah. And what you just said is interesting. Um, we could talk about it another, another episode, like what he says about receiving revelation and ideas popping into your head is very kind of very similar. So, um, okay. So I, the next, I'll, go ahead. Well, let me just throw in like two cents real quick. Cause I'm thinking about, about a lot of things here too. And particularly why this doctrine would be very appealing to women in the church, like you were saying, uh, because, you know, there is so much in the church that you cannot do if you are a woman, right? I mean, you can't hold any leadership positions. You can't, you can't even go up and bless your own baby when they name the baby, you know? Um, And so the idea that you could, 
go past this life and then actually have some some authority and and be something better is I can see how that would be appealing, but I do think that it it ends up being a false hope at the end of the day because you know you look at at all these passages you know in scripture or and and heavenly mother just just isn't isn't really mentioned at all and then uh even in the church you know it's like what happened with uh fiona uh, with with fiona gibbons that you were talking about before we started recording you know uh or i mean there have been people who said like you know don't don't pray to heavenly mother right like the church has actually come out and said that where it's like if if she's a member of the godhead then why should that even be be a thing like why are we as her children kept from being able to talk to her and so to me it just sounds like there's you know the hope that you're going to be a a goddess someday is kind of dashed by i'm not going to get to talk to my children when they're going through their mortality which is a an eternal life or death situation you know that moment where they need you the most and you you cannot have contact with them and it's just a they may come back to you they may not like you may never she you know, if she's real and she sent us all to this earth, she's not going to see a lot of us ever again. Like, that's it. We are now not worthy of her presence anymore. Um, so, so I think about all that and I just, I don't know. I don't know how I could try to put myself in a, in a LDS woman's shoes, especially, but I don't know how I could possibly hold on to that belief um, and actually hope for better things in the next life. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, let's go on to talk about the next two passages and we'll come back to talking about some of the, some of the recent uh, happenings around this doctrine within the LDS church. Um, so the next one is Psalm 82, six, uh, either of you have that, or if, if not, I've got it up, I can read it. Yeah, I've got it. Okay. Psalm 82 verse six and the King James says, I have said, ye are gods and all of you are children of the most high. All right. So what do you think of this this passage as a as a support for a doctrine of a mother in heaven? Yeah, similar to what we have talked about earlier in the Romans passage, where it just says that you you know children of God or you know um, created in the image of God, as in Genesis. It doesn't say anything about uh, a mother in heaven, so it kind of has to be like a deduction of like, well, for like like we've said multiple times, if we have heavenly parents that are father and mother, we must have. Uh, spiritual earthly mother, father and mother. We must have a heavenly father. But uh, we've we've kind of talked about in previous episodes, especially with the gospel topic essay about um, becoming like becoming gods or becoming like God. I forget what the exact title. But we had like a three part or four part or whatever it was <laughs> on that gospel topic essay. So uh, yeah, it's pretty long. Uh, so so we're for our um, listeners to that one if they want to know in depth our views of Psalm eighty two. But in context, I just don't think it's it's uh, speaking of it's either not it's either speaking of a heavenly council which doesn't include us or it's speaking of elders you know leaders in israel at that time who are ruling unjustly which also doesn't include us so to use us as justification for our being literal children of god it doesn't work either way no matter how no matter how you slice it yeah yeah for sure and it's it's a it's a psalm of judgment too um you know the Verse seven actually says, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So whether it's, whether it's referring to a, a heavenly council, right? The divine council, uh, or whether it's referring to, uh, leaders within Israel, uh, either way, uh, the judgment coming upon them here is not good. 
Um, they're not leading the, the the people justly, and so the, the the penalty of that is coming is being declared upon them. Um, so yeah, to to refer to this passage as a as a support for a doctrine of the mother of a mother in heaven is kind of an interesting approach to to take. I think, Michael, any thoughts on this passage? Um, I agree with what both of you said. I think that this is just um, them trying to to support that we can become gods and just they're trying to put up a uh, hundred different tacks on the wall to make a picture of, you know, you, you deduce enough different points. They're going to eventually point to there being a heavenly mother. But again, I think what really always bothered me is that there was never a clear scripture anywhere that says that there is a heavenly mother period. So this verse again does the same thing. Now, I think where I would have taken you guys to task a little bit if I was still LDS is uh, John chapter 10, uh, verses 34 and 36, where Jesus quotes the passage uh, because the Pharisees say that he is blaspheming because he's making himself God. And in verse 34, Jesus says, is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. If he called them gods under whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. Um, so a couple of things in that verse. And I know I'm going in a little bit of a tangent here, because like I said, none of this, even here in John 10, none of it supports there being a heavenly mother at all. Uh, but uh, first of all, he says that they were called uh, gods who the, to whom the word of God came, which I would have said, that's, that's us, that's human beings. Um, and then he's using it in a way, because I know that I've, I've heard evangelicals say uh, that the Psalms is talking about like judges or somebody in authority. But here, Jesus seems to be using it uh, in the context of how can it be blasphemy for me to call myself the son of God if Psalms says you are gods. And I'm just kind of surprised that, you know, the Pharisees uh, didn't come back to him and be like, okay, well, you're using eisegesis here. Like, that's not what that passage is even talking about. It seems to actually uh, kind of confuse them enough that, like, they stop questioning him here. So do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so my thought on that, and if you're going to take Psalm 82 as not referring to a heavenly council, a divine council of, of uh, angelic beings, um, but rather taking it to mean judges in Israel uh, who are not judging the people righteously, um, then the way Jesus seems to be using the passage in, in John 10 is to say um, that judges in Israel, um, someone like Moses, right, was a judge in Israel. Um, judges in Israel can be uh, referred to as quote unquote gods because they represent God to the people. Um, and so uh, later, or, or another, in another passage in the New Testament, in Matthew uh, 23, 2, Jesus says that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, right? And he, and he enjoins the people to, uh, to, to take heed of their word because they, they are sitting in the rightful seat of Moses as a judge of the people, as judges of the people. Um, so, but he says not to do their works, right? Because their works are, are not righteous, Right. So um, he's, he does seem to be saying that um, if you're taking Psalm 82 as, as judges within Israel, then, then yeah, this, you know, he could be referring to the Pharisees there and saying, you, you know, it doesn't say in your law, ye are gods, right? Because you're sitting in Moses' seat. Um, then how much more, you know, why would it be blasphemous for me to say that I'm the son of God? 
So that that that's kind of what he could be doing there. All right, cool. Thanks. All right. Yeah, I don't final. really have anything to add to that. Sorry about that. Go ahead. That's okay. Thanks, Matthew. Um, so the final passage that they cite in the essay is Doctrine and Covenants 132, 19 to 20. Do either of you have that? I'll read it if not. Um, so uh, 19 is, it might as well be a book on its own, but um, here it goes. Uh, and again, verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law and by the new and everlasting covenant, and it is sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit of promise, by him who is anointed, unto whom I have appointed this power and the keys of the priesthood, and it shall be said unto them, you shall come forth in the first resurrection, and if it be after the first resurrection, in the next resurrection, and shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers, dominions, all heights and depths, then shall it be written in the Lamb's book of life, that he shall commit no murder, whereby to shed innocent blood. And if ye abide in my covenant and commit no murder, whereby to shed innocent blood, it shall be done unto them in all things whatsoever my servant hath put forth upon them in time and through all eternity and shall be of full force when they are out of the world and they shall pass by the angels and the gods, which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things as hath been sealed upon their heads, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever and ever. Then shall they be gods because they have no end. Therefore, they shall be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. Then shall they be above all because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods because they have all power and the angels are subject unto them. So uh, of, of any of the passages that we've read tonight, this to me would seem to be uh, the most direct uh, one that that could be read as supporting a doctrine of a mother in heaven if you're if you're within the worldview of, of the Latter-day Saint uh, scripture that, that says there's a, an infinite regression of gods, uh, male and female, going back into eternity, uh, and that there will be forever and ever going forward into eternity as well as uh, men and women are sealed together um, under the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, which was originally um, having to do with polygamy. So um, any thoughts on this passage with relation to a mother in heaven? Michael, Matthew. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts about this passage. Um, first of all, I just have to throw this out there. I think it's hilarious. Um, well, I guess not hilarious, but that it basically says that you can uh, get away with anything as long as you don't murder anybody. So apparently you can go around robbing banks and selling people into into slavery and anything else. And that's fine. You'll get slapped on the wrist and you're still going to go for your exaltation. Um, I think that completely destroys the justice of God um, in that verse. But aside from that, like you said, Paul, this is definitely uh, the closest passage to saying, I mean, it clearly says that men and women are going to go on to become gods. And if you believe in the infinite regression of gods, logically, there must be a heavenly mother and a heavenly grandmother and so on and so forth. Um but again, it, it does not actually specify that there is a heavenly mother. I feel like a broken record. Do I sound like a broken record to you guys? <laughs> um, it still has to be inferred logically that there must be a heavenly mother. And I think that there are other parts of scripture that make it an impossibility. For example, it calls the father the most high God. And so that becomes a problem. I mean, if you're a Latter-day Saint, listening on you really think about this but if if the father is the most high god then he's not equal to his wife is he so so there's an unequal union even though she's she's a goddess somehow he's he's still greater they're not they're not equals 
Um, and I also think that whole thing takes away the idea of there being an infinite regression of gods. I mean, when I was LDS, I actually believed that the father was the original God, that he was not created at any point. And if that's the case, he doesn't need a wife because he would just be. And I think that's something that a Christian is going to understand at least. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, going back to our discussion earlier, too, about uh, I think it was both. Was it uh, was it Fiona Gibbons that, that uh, said she thought the Heavenly Mother was the Holy Ghost? Is that who we talked about? Yeah, let me grab that. So there's an article in the um, Salt Lake Tribune that touches on this. And just for the benefit of, benefit of our listeners, um, Terrell and Fiona Givens are Mormon uh, neo-apologists, I guess you would term them, um, but Mormon authors. They've written a number of books, uh, Terrell uh, on his own and, and Fiona on her own, and then the two of them together. Um, both both um, you know, well-studied and uh, credentialed LDS scholars um, but they were both working for, uh, the Maxwell Institute at BYU, um, which was formerly named farms, the foundation for ancient research and Mormon studies, but has undergone a cultural transition in terms of what, uh, Scott, what type of scholarship it wants to put out, uh, less apologetic and more scholarly. Um, and so Fiona Givens had recently done a study, uh, as I understand it of ancient references to female deities, uh, in the form of pillars of light. And then she was comparing that to in a, in a fireside, uh, a virtual fire fireside to the uh, first vision of Joseph Smith, where he talks about seeing a pillar of light. And so I guess was making the, uh, the suggestion that um, the father, the son and the mother were present at the first vision as, as the, the Godhead. And um, she's quoted, let me find the, the quote here. Um, hang on. I'm looking in the article to try to find exactly where she says the line about the Holy spirit. Um, and I'm not finding it. Um, but in any case she was, she was asked and I'm not sure when it sounded like maybe in an, in an interview, um, if, uh, if she thought the, um, cause I guess, I guess the interviewer was, was seeing the implication there that the, the heavenly mother would be the, the Holy spirit and, um, asked her if she thought that was the case. And she seemed to indicate yes in the quote in this article. And I, and I can share this article in the, in the show notes so people can read it for themselves. But um, she's so Fiona Givens gave this fireside. And then um, pretty quickly after that, I guess this was in May of 2021, pretty quickly after that um, was no longer uh, employed by the Maxwell Institute at BYU and is turning down um, requests to speak publicly. So in, it, it does sound like she was um, reprimanded for, for sharing her views in that regard. Um, so there's the background for our listeners. Any, any thoughts from you, Matthew or Michael on that? Yeah, I was just, uh, I was just kind of mentioning her passing because of that comment, because I found also we were talking before recording and uh, Margaret Barker made a, a 2015 fair Mormon conference presentation called the mother in heaven and her children. And I think she's like a Methodist or something like that. So she's not Latter-day Saint, but she's often quoted by LDS uh, she's very much on the like liberal kind of scholar spectrum. So she has some very aberrant uh, ideas as compared to historical Christianity. And so they asked her the question, uh, number five, do you believe the Holy Ghost is our mother in heaven? The answer is yes. And then uh, question seven, should the traditional concept of the Godhead, i.e. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, include her? And her answer was, well, it does. So she was kind of saying that this is like secret or lost knowledge that people used to worship 
the, you know, the Holy Ghost as Heavenly Mother, supposedly. It's an interesting uh, kind of connection she tries to make. But I forgot what my original point was. But um, if we're talking about, like, uh, Michael, I think it's going back to what Michael said about the God being the most high God. If you think of if Heavenly Mother is the Holy Ghost, well, then you have the Heavenly Father, which is at the top, and then Jesus Christ, which is right below him. And then his wife, the Holy Ghost, is below Jesus. So in the hierarchy, his wife comes below uh, Christ. And that causes problems also because the Holy Ghost doesn't have a body. So she hasn't been resurrected. So, I mean, to me, that causes all kinds of issues, if you consider it that way. Because we look forward to our resurrection. That's that's why Christ was resurrected, was to give us hope. You know, to give us hope that there is there is life after and that we will be reunited with our bodies in heaven but she doesn't have that yet. So for however many eons she has existed, she has been disembodied. And so the only time she would ever actually get her body is after everybody who's ever born on this planet will live and die, accept or reject the gospel, and then everything is done. And then maybe she'll get a body. Or uh, as Michael said, like, well, if she's part of the Godhead, but eh, why don't we worship her? But if she's not the Holy Spirit, then she's a God that's equal, supposedly in power to the Father, but she's not in the Godhead. Or she's like a secret fourth member that nobody knows about. So anyway, you try to look at it, trying to fit Heavenly Mother somewhere in there. It just doesn't make any sense. And, and uh, yeah, well, also refer our listeners to the episode we have with the episodes we had with uh, Aaron Shafawalaf, where we talk about exaltation dilemmas in Mormonism, where uh, we talk about these expanding godheads or, you know, like, um, will Jesus also be part of another Godhead, you know, with him at, at the top? And so that will that mean that Jesus is part of two separate Godheads, you know, one for this universe and one for his own universe. And uh, when we become gods, will we become, you know, if we follow the plan, I guess, will we become gods in our Godhead? And will that keep happening where you've got these overlapping Godheads? There's all kinds of issues when you consider the entire system of, of exaltation in the LDS uh, system. Yeah, for sure. And um, for the benefit of our listeners as well, like, Matthew mentioned Margaret Barker. So yeah, she's a, she's a Methodist uh, scholar uh, who has written quite extensively on temple theology, uh, trying to recreate the theology of the uh, the uh, of Solomon's temple, the first temple, um, and kind of makes the makes the suggestion um, consistent with like the the Deuteronomic history uh, theory, which is that you know Deuteronomy was written later. Um, during the time of the exile and, um, but, but kind of makes the, Margaret Barker kind of tries to make the case that, uh, the, the theology of the first temple was different than the theology of the second temple, which was, was kind of focused on more priestly, the more priestly role that you see, um, in, in the law of Moses and kind of tries to make room for a female deity being part of, uh, temple worship and, and, and worship in, in Israel before, the exile. So um, it's 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 definitely a line of scholarship that Latter Day Saints love to jump into. I think one of you mentioned when we were talking before we hit record uh, the the Nephi's Asherah article. Uh, I think it was Daniel Peterson that wrote that. I may be wrong. It may be somebody else, but it was somebody at Farms wrote that, um, trying to make the case that uh, Nephi in the Book of Mormon. Uh, refers to a female deity and and then tie that to Asherah worship in the Old Testament. Um, and so there's a, there's this you know alternative line of scholarship, um, the more liberal side of of Christian scholarship that looks at Asherah worship in the in the Old Testament as once being a normative uh, thing within Israel, and that uh, later uh, man it's it's a, it's a very feminist uh, approach to the Old Testament 
that later men, you know, kind of wrote out a female deity out of scripture. Um, so um, Margaret Barker does that. And then uh, Daniel McClellan, who's an LDS uh, scholar, does that as well. Uh, you see him do it on, you can see him do it on TikTok quite a bit on his uh, TikTok videos. Uh, he's a uh, scripture uh, translation. I forget his exact title, uh, but he's involved with scripture translation for the LDS church in an official capacity. Um, but he studied under um, Francesca Stavrakopoulou, I think is her name. And she, she does a lot of that same kind of scholarship uh, about a mother in heaven, about um, female deities. Um, I recall seeing her uh, not that long ago, um, a few years back, I saw the video. I, I think it's from uh, maybe uh, seven years ago, maybe a decade ago, she was on a, a, a British um talk show and she was being asked about her scholarship and you know she was being pretty she's pretty um i'd call her a firebrand she's pretty uh she can be pretty offensive at times like she was uh just making bold claims you know like moses never existed uh those kind of claims and uh you know basically said about uh you know the men who wrote scripture that they were uh a bunch of men with daddy issues um and so you know that that kind of uh i would say uh not um grace-filled and uh, not uh, charitable approach to scholarship is not something I really uh, would like to tie my hat on. So I, also, I sometimes find it interesting that uh, Latter-day Saints do. And Daniel McClellan uh, studied under Francesca, Francesca Stavrakopoulou. He, she was, I think he mentioned in one of his videos, she was his uh, thesis advisor. So it's just interesting to me how, how Latter-day Saints will, will latch on to the more liberal forms of scholarship to try to support their beliefs. So, um, sorry, I went off on a big tangent there, but I wanted to make sure and get that in. Um, all right, that's it for this episode, Fireflies. Next week, we'll be back with the rest of our discussion of the LDS Gospel Topics essay, Mother in Heaven. Thank you for tuning in. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to Outer Brightness wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're benefiting from our content, please write a review to help us spread the word. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. Music for Outer Brightness is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and Adams Road. You can learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. worthy of the blood that Jesus shed. But now I know that all the works I did were meaningless compared with Jesus' lonely death on the cross where he bore sin. And now I have the righteousness that is my faith in Jesus'
that stood opposed and nailed it there for me. And through the cross, He put to death hostility and in His body reconciled us to God and brought us peace. And I am crucified with Christ and I no longer of the cross Some demand a sign and some seek to be wise But we preach Christ crucified A stumbling block for some The foolishness of God But wiser than the wisest man The power of the cross May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Through which the world has been crucified to me And I to the world So I take up my cross and follow